Um, so this week, um, we're going to finish up Lord's Day 27, uh, looking particularly at question 74. We finished up question 72 and 73, uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, get through, uh, hopefully get through all of question 74. There might be a few things to wrap up uh, next week, but we'll try and press forward. Uh, so we're looking at Heidelberg Catechism, question 74. You'll find that on page uh, 884 yes. of the Psalter Hymnal. So let's, um, let's read this together. Should infants also be baptized? Answer, yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they know less than the adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church, children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Well, let's jump in this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time of study, uh, this time to uh, look at your word, uh, to think uh, more clearly about what you have spoken to us. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed uh, give us understanding uh, as we work through these things. Uh, Lord, would you give us conviction? Lord, would you show us by your word uh, what you have revealed? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, as we jump in, and I know last week we had a number of questions about various things, um, I'm thinking and hoping, and you will prove me right or wrong as to whether those were some good preliminary introductory questions that prepared us for this very moment and subject. Um, not that questions aren't welcome. Yes, we will have questions, but I think uh, some of those things were helpful to us in order to get us to this place uh, today. So I want to start. Um, there's all kinds of different ways that we could approach the subject of infant baptism, and this class is particularly a class on the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this, if we were to have a class on baptism, we could have a long, protracted study on baptism, which would be great, and we could do that, uh, but this is a study on the Heidelberg Catechism, and so I want to um, offer the Catechism's answers to the question, and also look at the Catechism's reasoning for that particular answer. And so that's the way I'm going to address it, aside from a couple things that I'm going to bring into it. Um, <clears throat> the first thing I want to talk about, because um, oftentimes when you bring up the subject of infant baptism, there's some talking past each other that happens often. Um, and so I want to bring up one particular issue from the outset that hopefully will help us uh, come to a common understanding 
so that we can move forward and look at the reasoning that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us, including the proof texts that are associated with the answer. Uh, the, the thing I want to start with is a hermeneutical question, a question of how is it that we interpret Scripture? What, do we, what understanding do we bring to the Scripture? What tools do we bring to the Scripture? What are our expectations of the Scripture and how we read the Bible in order to take those things and apply those things as we seek to interpret what Scripture says? Um, there's a common objection, and I, I want to set forth infant baptism in a positive way, which is the way that... Uh, the catechism does, but I want to address an objection uh, that often comes. There's a common objection uh, to infant baptism that there is no express command to baptize infants and no clear record of it taking place in the New Testament. That's often an objection, a very common objection. But that objection is actually undergirded by a hermeneutical presupposition, and I want to get at that hermeneutical presupposition that sits under there. So in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, which is on the Holy Scriptures, section 6 gives us a hermeneutical principle of how it is that we take Scripture and use Scripture to interpret what Scripture is saying. So Westminster Confession of Faith 1.6 says... The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture. Okay? So it's either, that's, that's our hermeneutical principle there, right? That all of these things concerning faith and life, salvation, who God is, all those kinds of things that God has revealed, they're either, either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture. By good and necessary consequence. Now, I make that point because if we look at the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which was essentially a reworking of the Westminster Confession, there's there in chapter 1, section 6, is a hermeneutical principle outlined, and it states this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, which is exactly what Westminster says, but here's a difference, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. Do you see the hermeneutical difference there. The one speaks about good and necessary consequence and may be deduced from Scripture. The other one says that it's either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. Okay? All that to say there's a difference in the way that we're taking the Scriptures and what is required in the way that we would say, yes, the scripture says that. David, go ahead. Can you just explain a little bit more about the difference between Yes, I will give examples. Let me give, let me give two examples. Well, yeah, two examples. 
One thing that we often talk about as being good and, nece- and good and necessary consequence of Scripture is the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? We don't have a systematic explanation of the Trinity. But we take Scripture and we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture and we deduce from Scripture by good and necessary consequence the, the theological understanding that we have of the nature of the Trinity. Right? The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And so on and so forth. Okay. There's one example. Another example. I'll ask it in a question. Can women partake of the Lord's Supper? Can women partake of the Lord's Supper? Defend from Scripture. What you're not going to find in the Scripture is a verse that says, women must take the Lord's Supper, nor will you find in the Scripture somewhere that prohibits women from taking the Lord's Supper, right? So how do we know that women not only can, but must take the Lord's Supper? How? David. Well, I would take it from the fact that the church was very clean together to bread, bread, and we know that women are in the church, and we also know that in Christ there's neither male nor female. And so I would conclude it's pretty clear that, that women take the Lord's Supper just as men do. Yeah. Perhaps it is, but we had to go in a couple different directions. We didn't get a direct, you must. Right, and so I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue that infant baptism functions in the same way as what we just did there. Go ahead, David. But I would also say, so does the Trinity. Sure. I mean, what I mean is, I mean, if you're going to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is a logical consequence of the Westminster so, so I'm not I'm not necessarily arguing that there's that that is is different. I'm just saying there's a difference in in the hermeneutical principle there that in some ways tightens things down to require perhaps something additional. And we don't have to get into the details of what that actually what that particularly is. I just want to bring up the fact that there is a hermeneutical difference that we see the objections to, the, to infant baptism hanging on and requiring something that we don't necessarily require of other particular things. That's, that's, the, that's as far as I want to go with the hermeneutical thing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I Bill. Just wanna... Yeah. I, I want you to say something clearly because I just want to hear it. Yeah. You're not saying that the London Baptist guys don't believe in a Trinitarian God. Absolutely not. But they're inconsistent in saying, we want to see it written in Scripture, the word Trinity. So, they're not agreeing with that. So, so I'm just saying that they have, they're saying that it needs to either be expressly set down or necessarily contained. What does necessarily contained mean? And I'm just saying that there's a question there. There's some, there's some stretchiness that needs to be dealt with because we can't just say it has to be expressly set down, which is often the objection that is used against infant baptism.
Because we don't do that consistently. David, yeah. It's, uh, Scott, yeah. I, I, I just, while you're on the topic, because I, I get the necessarily deduced from, and I was wondering if the counterpoint that you're saying is necessarily contained. I, I don't quite understand. The, I get the necessarily deduced from. Yeah. See, and that's, that's where you get some, there's some ambiguity in that language, right? What it, well, what does it mean that it's necessarily contained, right? And that's, that's all that I'm saying, okay. is that... Yeah. Yeah. Necessarily contained, yeah. But would it? Right, and I, I think I think it's just more ambiguous. It's it's, it's ambiguous. Yeah, Ben. Uh, I just want to point out I wasn't aware of that. I did not know they made that modification for confession. That really is very significant because all of the forms of magic from Calvin to Bob and the Westminster Confession, Ephesians chapter one, starts with the doctrine. Yeah. Right. Right, and, and there may only be really a very few things that fall into the category, right, that would make the distinction. But but it's an important it's an important thing to re to recognize in terms of how we take scripture. Yeah. So, I, as you read those two statements, I don't hear a whole lot of difference. Like, I hear, what I hear is, we both, they both expressions say, what's in the scripture, that's where we start. And they're both saying, in slightly different ways, and what, what we would introduce directly from the scripture. Yeah. Now, at the same time, I know, the London Baptists were saying, yes, we love Westminster. But we don't want baptism. And that altered their hermeneutical approach. What is the, how do you know which hermeneutic is right? Well, what did, what did the Westminster divine say? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, go ahead. Jesus to get away from the infant baptism point, there had to be a shift in the minds of those who composed the London Baptist Confession. There had to be a shift of hermeneutics so that the Presbyterians had it open too far. It needed to be closed a little bit. All right, that's all I want to say about hermeneutics. <laughs> now let's get into the question here. And, and really... We have, um, I'll say, four things, four reasons that Heidelberg gives 
for uh, infants being uh, properly uh, administered baptism. The first is covenant. The second is promise. The third is they are distinguished. And then fourth is continuity. So let's just look at those. Uh, let's look at those. So the first statement uh, in the answer says that infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. So covenant. Genesis 17, verses 7 to 11. You all know this, I'm sure. God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, so we have there the establishment, and I mean there's multiple places in Genesis when the Lord establishes and reaffirms his covenant to Abraham, which the New Testament takes as being fulfilled in Christ, right, that we are, as the church, the children of Abraham. Uh, Galatians 3.29, right, tells us that the covenant of Abraham was not abrogated but fulfilled. Listen to what Paul says. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christians are heirs to the promise of Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ. That pattern of the covenant promise is not merely to the individual Abraham, but to Abraham and to his offspring. So that the promise says, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All that to say, how many times in the passage in Genesis when God is declaring his covenant to Abraham, did he include there your offspring after you, your descendants, your offspring. This is my covenant to you, between me and you and between your offspring, right? Over and over. So how do we learn what a covenant is? We don't read a book called Covenants necessarily, right? We look at Scripture, and Scripture tells us, well, what are the terms of a covenant? What does it mean? Who's included in all those kinds of things? Jesus says in Matthew 19, 13 to 15, Then the children were brought to him, that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. I think that's significant. Jesus is not saying, 
The kingdom of heaven, one day when they express faith, may belong to them. But theirs is the kingdom. These little ones that I'm holding, that I'm putting my hands on, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One more example. The Apostle Paul addresses the children of believers with the commands of Christ. This should be a, this is a significant thing. Paul says in Ephesians 6:1, children obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. What children of parents in the church need to obey this command? Is all of them is it only those who have made a profession of faith? Are they the only ones who we train in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? No. From the earliest days, the reasoning behind our parenting and telling our kids, listen to me, I am your father, is that we're doing it as to those who are in the Lord. Because that's what the Lord commands of you, child of mine. I won't name any particular children that I have to say that most to, but... (laughs) And so the question is, um, in what sense are the children of believers in the Lord? That's the way that Paul designates the children of believers. Yeah, Marissa. Also in that passage Yeah. That's exactly what's the promise, right? What's that what's that promise related to? Is it not the Abrahamic promise? That you may live long in the land that you Yeah. Yeah, right. What? Yeah, but that commandment is an outflowing of the Abrahamic promise. And so that, and there I think there's... In some sense, it, it's a different administration of the covenant of grace. So it is the same in substance, in essence... Yeah. Oh, Marissa just uh, referenced the fact that uh, the Galatia, uh, where was I? Oh, the Ephesians 6 passage goes on uh, to speak about that. Marissa, well, I'll read it because I have a microphone. <laughs> So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
And so right there, what I'm saying is that that's, and Marissa, thanks for bringing that up because that broadens the contextual uh, nature of that to situate it directly into the covenant. Right? The, pro, the Mosaic administration is a typological fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Right? That dwelling in the land is the promise that was given to Abraham. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, you, actually, I never thought of it. Well, you separated from that specific promise. God's law is not given. God's law is, is given to the covenant people of God. That's why the prologue starts, I am the Lord of God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's, it's not that the nations are exempt, but they're not given by God. And so the very fact that that's the nature of the covenant of grace right it comes as redemption right the the indicative of what god has done in christ right or prior to christ for signified in the Exodus, right? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of... Right? Redemption is... There's an indicative of what God has done. The imperative only comes to those who have received the indicative. Baptism, is it not the indicative of what God has done? It is a promise of what God has done declared upon the recipient. Yeah, Marissa. I have a question as well about that passage. So okay. It says um, that it would be well for you to make a little in the land of God's Is he referring to the new heavens and the new earth? It's a good question. So I would ask. Can you repeat the question for everybody? Does. Is the promise there that you may live long in the land a reference to the new heavens and new earth? Is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise fulfilled in that the place of Israel, when the people of Israel enter into the promised land, is that the, the final fulfillment of it, or is it pointing forward to something else? It's pointing forward to the consummate fullness of God's redemptive purposes of bringing his people to glory. Right? Yeah. I have a question specifically about circumcision. And I'm willing to reserve my question if you want to get into the fourth one. But I'm going to ask you for a promise that you're going to give me enough time. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, we only have like nine minutes left and we only got through the first section. So, oh, so there, is, there, is, there is no promise. But we'll, when. Do you want to? It's the Would it... point, and I don't want. Oh, oh, oh we're going to get there. We're not going to not get to any of these things. Okay. We might not get to them now, but we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Yeah.
You bring up a good point. How does God deal with families covenantally? He treats them as covenantal units. And that'll come out, you know, even as we as we look. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, in, in the promise, right, the promise to Eve comes through her family, yeah, through her lineage. So, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, uh, I think people get really hung up on details of things, whether you're in London or Congress or whatever. Yeah. You, you can make it very simple from what is demonstrated throughout the whole Bible. It's like, why? The, yeah. Right, right, and and that's right. That's that's a really good point. Um, I was gonna address that, I guess, in the distinguished section, but this is as good as any. No, no, no. This is as good as any to 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 speak about that very fact uh, of that what we might call the oikos principle, the household principle that we see throughout the scriptures, throughout God's covenantal dealings with His people, and. It's not a surprise then when we see that in Acts, him and his household. Well, that's what's always, that's how God has always dealt with his covenant people. It's not, there's nothing new happening here. It is, there's, there's continuity that exists. God ordained continuity, obviously. All right, um, let's. Let's keep going. We have, we have a good five minutes left. Let's go into number two, uh, from covenant to promise. Heidelberg goes on and says, And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Um, some of the texts that Heidelberg uses, uh, Isaiah 44 Verses 1 to 3. But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. So all we're saying here, all we're talking about is the fact that the Lord in making promises is making promises that perpetuate to the offspring of those who are being promised. Right? So that it's not simply for the adult recipients, but those who come after them are likewise recipients of the promise that the Lord is, is making. We see the same thing here in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, anyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Then Acts 16.31, And behold, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved you and your household. Now we live in an age that particularly idolizes the idea of independence. Um, You know, family structures are not something uh, that are valued so much as they had been in previous generations. Not just, you know, 50 years ago, but earlier in human history. Yet what we see in the family is that the family is the basic unit of society that is created by God. It has always been the ordinary mechanism for passing down the faith. Always. And so if if the family is a conduit of God's common grace, right? The family, through the family, good things are passed along as well as bad things, right? We recognize that in this world that we live in. But there are good things by God's common grace that are passed along by families. Why would it not have the same function for his special grace? Why would this basic unit that God establishes for the disciplining of children, why would it not also be a conduit of his saving grace. We we ought not to disparage God's good design. How many of you were raised in a Christian home? Where do the vast majority of Christians come from? I just saw a lot of hands. It seems to me that the vast majority of Christians come from Christian parents. Is that something for us to disparage? And to think that that's not really, you know, that's not really a good thing. Right? Children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord within believing families, those are good gifts that the Lord gives. And nobody's going to disagree with that, right? Nobody's going to disagree with that. But by God's grace, we pray that our children would walk in the way of Christ that has been handed down to them, not by accident. It wasn't an accident that our particular children were born into our particular family so that they could hear these particular promises of God to them. But it is by God's good providence that we who were raised in Christian homes were raised in Christian homes, that we could have Christian homes, that our children would have Christian homes, and that by God's grace, their children would have Christian homes. See, it's not a liability that your testimony includes, I grew up in a Christian home. You know, how many times have you, who have grown up in a Christian home, got to a time where people are telling their testimony and everybody's got these stories about all the things that they did in in the way that they used to be. And then you get up sheepishly and you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home and, well... I never knew a day that I didn't know the Lord. And, and it's almost as if that that's like, 
oh, well, see, you're only a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. And, and the answer is, yes, thank the Lord. Right? That is a good and wonderful thing that comes about as a result of God's design. And guess what happens to those who didn't grow up in a Christian home after they become Christians? What do they establish? Christian homes. Right? And that's what we see in places like Acts 16, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and the household now that you establish within the covenant parameters that God has given and the promise that your seed would live in the promise of God of the gospel of Jesus. All right, I'm going to stop there because I'm not going to go 10 or 15 minutes over. But um, that will then lead us to number three that we'll look at next week, uh, that the children of believers are distinguished. Any last questions? Yeah, Ray. I've heard people say that uh, they'll, they'll take that first out of context. They'll say, oh, because I'm a believer, like all my children are going to be saved. Well, and obviously, it's not the case. And they've got to learn how to save Christ. But people will take that out of context. Yeah, yeah, and that exactly. That is. Out of context. Exactly. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, Allison. I'll make one comment, uh, one historical comment. Um, there is conflicting evidence in the early centuries of the church. The earliest records we have do seem to lean towards infants being baptized. Uh, later on, there are um, there's a shift to baptisms later in life, but there is a reason for that shift which is that they're not understanding baptism merely as a sign and seal, but as an ex opere operato uh, sacramental work, so that actually in the act of baptism, your sins are washed away. And so the reason for postponing baptism would be, well, once you're baptized, then your previous sins are washed away, but now you've already been baptized, your sins can't be washed away, so let's wait until somebody's to the point of, you know, the end of their life to baptize them and then wash away their sins. What was that? Yeah, and right, there's some, like, right, some, like, last rites kind of thing. So it's not, 
Just because the timing is the same doesn't mean the argument for why they're doing it's the same. And th again, there's lots of evidence out there and all these things, but that seems to be the way, the thinking of why most, when people were postponing baptism, why they were postponing baptism. Yeah, we're thinking about the, the, the fact that baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Yeah, Peter. What uh, Pastor Booth mentioned this morning in Zechariah 3. Yeah. I like that image because Joshua is inactive. God clothes him in righteousness of God's righteousness. And it's, for me, just a great picture that I have not done anything, but Christ has done everything. And it's even with our kids, we have to rely on God's grace to act in their lives. Yeah, I mean, even as, you know, Pastor Booth was speaking about Titus this morning, that God is fulfilling the promise that was placed upon him in his baptism. Right? Again, that I'm not active. I'm a recipient of this. Just as we, well, what is baptism, what is it, what is it a sign of? Of Christ's redemption, right? That's a promise to anyone who believes in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, go ahead. It also wants to be very crazy Christian. I just want to give you testimony that now I see God so much more merciful and gracious. And what a privilege, like you talked about, it is to have Christian children and then having covenant grandchildren that we have the opportunity to pass it on. It, it's... Yeah. Yeah. John, did you have a question? Uh, just something that is slightly different than this, but in the context of <coughs> systematic theology, I think it's really interesting how the Heidelberg organizes this question and marches directly through the Heidelberg up to the point we are now. Yeah. It's not an isolated question. If everything that came before this question is necessary to even understand the context of this question makes sense. Yeah. It is our sin, our deliverance, God's promises to us, Him as our mediator, Him as the sovereign over all. And the other confessions and catechisms do the same thing. They don't baptism right up. Right. In context, after everything else is pretty much explained, and we're starting to say how we live our lives for Christ. Yeah. Especially in that. Yeah, and I mean, I like how Heidelberg brings that, those previous things to bear when it says in question 74, the end of the first sentence there, uh, our promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Right? Remember, the sacraments, the whole sacrament section starts with how is faith received? Right? The Holy Spirit, who works faith. Any other questions? I said I wasn't going to go 10 minutes over, but somehow <laughs> I need to stop earlier for questions. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, uh, uh, for... Uh, 
the opportunity that we have uh, to ask questions, to think about these things, uh, Lord, to, um, to seek that you would indeed give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear these things. Uh, Lord, would you continue uh, to grow us, continue to shape us, continue uh, to discipline us, uh, Lord, that we would think your thoughts after you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.